0: Hi everyone, this week I'm joined by Corey Combs, analyst at Trivium, a policy advisory boutique focused on China. Corey covers China's energy policy and is the author of the awesome China Net Zero weekly newsletter. We had a very interesting conversation on China energy and climate policy, and stay until the end for his view on the impact of the Ukraine war on China's climate targets. Corey, welcome to the podcast. Could you present Trivium and how you came to join the team?
1: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Trivium is a small uh, policy research shop, although oh, no, growing rapidly recently in light of uh, many of the shifts, particularly about uh, China's energy transition. Um, a lot of what we do is, is really just dig through all of the government documents and see what is actually happening. You know, there's so much information about China. There's so much news about the market, about governments, all of this stuff. And it's, it's really hard to sort through and get signal from noise. Uh, so that is, that is our main role. Uh, we talk to a broader range of clients. So for example, multinationals, central banks, governments, etc. Um, but really, the central goal is the same, to help understand what's happening, uh, how to respond and how to be a part of solutions. C-
0: could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to join uh, join the team? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. I'm a bit of an odd duck, I think, in terms of climate. I My, my training was originally in physics. Uh, I was very interested in unpacking uh, systems, per se. Um, so ultimately, I, I ended up leaving the laboratory and wanted to do something with a bit more of a social focus. And yada, yada, years go by, and I end up in climate because, obviously, with the, the, energy, the physics and energy background, uh, that was kind of the natural place. What I didn't expect was that there would be a natural home uh, at a China-specific research firm. Um, so I was previously at the Department of Energy in the United States, I previously done research on, uh, on the broader Asia um, energy trade and a few other particular things, life cycle assessment. Uh, a lot of more technical stuff and I was like, okay, this is great, but, but what does it all mean? What is the policy driving all of the changes? How do we get to net zero? Um, and I was very fortunate to have met uh, the Trivium folks uh, a while back and we basically were like, now is the time. Now is the time to really dive into China's climate transition and uh, I was very lucky to have a, a chance to join and, and
0: discuss that. You have for sure a very interesting background to work on energy policy issues. Um, could you give us a high-level overview of what China's climate policy is looking like now?
1: Sure, absolutely. And I'll start with a high-level note that um, the central challenge for China's climate policy is, is energy, obviously, uh, although to some extent industry will talk about that too. But the, the central struggle is that decarbonization, for now, and this doesn't have to be the case, but for now is still in tension with economic stability and energy security concerns. Um, Again, China's at a very high level, Uh, Beijing and Xi Jinping himself have have cogently outlined a future in which there is no tension, in which green economy um, and green economic drivers are sustainable and can fuel everything with no frictions between the two sides. But for now, we're not there yet. Uh, And so the question is really how to get there. So here's the main challenge of how we get there. Uh, China is still highly dependent on coal uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is simply what's called baseload power. Uh, and by that, we mean power you can have anytime you want it, right? Renewables, China's a leader in building renewables. And it's, it's this kind of interesting, uh, uh, not contradiction, but this kind of interesting contrast. Uh, China's the leading user of coal and renewables, <laughs> which in some sense isn't surprising given how large China is. Um, but on the other hand, it, it duly deserves criticism for its dependence on coal and duly deserves credit for the, the degree and strength of its renewables build-out. And that's kind of always a tension there. Um, Part of the issue is that China has incredible uh, natural availability of resources, namely solar and wind, but they tend to be fairly distant uh, from the main power consumption areas. And so you need to transmit that power, particularly from the west and the desert regions toward the industrialized coastline. Right now, that's still a challenge, and so you um, you end up with a lot of basically political and financial issues in getting that power across the line, literally across provincial lines in many cases. Um, electricity system is still uh, partially liberalized, and I use the term liberalized loosely here. Um, and that that also raises challenges. Everything is pegged to coal, uh, but it does mean that we're not getting enough renewables onto the grid. Right? It can build a lot more, um, but it needs to be able to send it somewhere for that to be useful. And the other side of this, I'd note, in terms of just you know getting power out, is that a lot of industry. Uh, China's GDP is still very dependent on, on steel, in particular downstream in the property sector. Uh, a lot of that steel capacity, uh, for those in the know, China's long been trying to reduce its steel over capacity. It's WTO issues, it's a very complicated issue. But from the energy side, what we're looking at is a lot of that coal capacity still requires coal. It's really hard to electrify and use renewables to make, coal, uh, to make steel, I should say. Uh, and the same is true of aluminum. So you have these major GDP drivers that just need coal furnaces. It's a high level on the energy.
0: Oh, that's a lot. Um, I'd like to come back to Xi Jinping's announcement of China's target to achieve net zero before twenty sixty. Could you come back to explain the target in itself and how this policy has been implemented since 2020?
1: Absolutely, in 2020, uh, Xi Jinping announced uh, on the world stage, right? uh, Not not in a domestic policy document um, that China, who's committing China to uh, net zero before uh, before 2060. So we have peak emissions before 2030 and carbon neutrality before 2060, which I would note net neutrality does not mean zero emissions. It means that emissions are offset by means to capture those emissions. So for those uh, wondering exactly how that looks. So basically since uh, September, 2020, when this commitment was made, made, these these 2030, 2060 or dual carbon targets as they're often called uh, for short, There was a mad dash across China's bureaucracy, and I would note that there were so many actors. I mean, we're talking the financial regulation, local emissions, energy, industry, transportation, everybody uh, across the bureaucracy was looking, how do we do this? How do we take Xi Jinping's mandate here, his mandate has given us, uh, and turn that into action? So we've seen a year and a half, two years of just turning those plans into actions. Uh, Obviously, I say two years. Um, this was this was getting started a little before 2020 but really hit its peak um, in that in that year, so what we have initially is a mess, <laughs> frankly, of, of policy making. Uh, Beijing is well aware of this, it's a common issue, uh, the party is running a massive bureaucracy in a massive country right so it's not a new issue, so how do they address this and what do we have now. The main thing it's, it's a little bit policy will but very important here it's called the one plus plus N climate policy system. Now, what that means is to kind of coordinate across all of these areas of reform and then simultaneous reforms that frequently interact with each other, right? So it's, it's not as easy as you do this, you do this, they all influence each other. So how do you coordinate that? Well, Beijing decided to do with this, again, one plus N system. it's so basically there's one core reform document. It basically codifies the high level goals 2030, 2060, along with a few other specifics with the 14th five year plan, et cetera. Um, and then it has N, how many, we don't know, N, right, uh, back to algebra, um, different specific documents to say, here's how we do it for coal, here's how we do it for aviation, etc. And so it's what I would call like a hub and spokes model, or maybe a snowflake model, because we'll then get more specific from there. So the idea is that every plan at the end kind of relates back to this hierarchical system, and that's, that's the goal really to decarbonize in concert across many different areas.
0: And what is your view on how the overall strategy has been shaping? Two years after Xi's announcement, is it a well thought and consistent strategy, or is it still in the making? It's a great question. I actually think the policy design overall has, has
1: shaped up quite nicely. Uh, honestly, a little bit better than I frankly had expected. Um, and that comes at a cost, though. Uh, how was it able to do that? Basically, climate policy, which had been given, basically, the, the remit was given to. The environmental regulator uh, the MEP and later the MEE in 2018 um, was handed over to the macro planner the national development and reform commission uh, the NDRC um, the macro planner again is is really as, as its name suggests an economic focus body it, it, it's it's born out of the days of central planning right uh, for the economy so it controls effectively climate policy in China the good news is that it's incredibly powerful um, it knows what it's doing and it gets stuff done right the problem is that uh, when there's an economic concern that will usually take priority over a lot of the climate reforms. So the again, back and forth here, the good news to this bad news is that she basically laid down the law He said, no, decarbonization is an actual legitimate policy priority. We're going to make it happen. The NDRC took notice. Then we have fall of 2021, we have a power crunch driven by coal and the says, nope, we can't, we can't have energy security risk. We're back to coal. <laughs> right?" And so you know, in reality, obviously things move more slowly. It's not one month you can completely change the energy base. I don't want to mislead with that, but in terms of policy prioritization, we are seeing a lot of back and forth. Um, and so the strength of being able to commit to climate policy and the risk of reverting back to short-term kind of coal and, and economic interests, they lie in the same source, which is the New control over the situation.
0: Yesterday, the two sessions closed, and there were quite a few interesting announcements regarding climate and energy. Uh, Could you come back uh, and explain what are the two sessions and give us an overview of what has been announced regarding climate? Sure.
1: Uh, The two sessions refer to two particular meetings. Basically, together, they are um, China's top parliamentary session. Happens every year. Uh, You have the National People's Congress. Uh, which is the legislative body, and you have the Central People's Political Consultative Conference, <laughs> quite a name, but CPP, CC, or Deng if you want to do the Chinese short, shorthand. They say, here are the laws we want to change, here's what we want to update, et cetera. Um, so that obviously is based on all of the policy making prior. So they're looking at the 14 five year plan, they're looking at all of the statements out of state council, et cetera. Um, but they kind of turn that into action for the for the year. And so it's very important to know. If for anyone seeing coverage in, in major media it's very important to know the two sessions are focused on one year they are not looking at the five-year or ten-year horizons and so climate looks a little bit different uh, from the perspective of, of the
0: two sessions and what has been announced regarding climate this year because it's quite interesting
1: i agree um so really what we're seeing is uh, a significant shift, uh, one good shift and one bad shift, <laughs> I would say in my view. And by good and bad, I mean, with respect to decarbonization. Um, the good shift is that uh, we're really seeing a movement from policy design into policy implementation. Uh, and so talking about all that one plus N stuff, all that you know, snowflake version of, of policy making, kind of um, building all that infrastructure out, uh, the two sessions, give several positive indicators that we're really moving ahead The number one thing I would highlight is that the government work report highlighted uh, China will eventually, but now more quickly, move away from energy targets toward actual emission targets. The reason that matters, energy is basically a stand-in for emissions, but as the energy mix decarbonizes, right? Energy consumption is not really the issue. It's how much of it is emitting carbon uh, dioxide. Um, And so actually being able to move to that is a big deal. Why hasn't it happened already it's very technically challenging but right? it's very difficult to measure direct emissions from most metal production for example you have to estimate it it's usually pretty well, pretty badly estimated not because of china but because it's technically challenging um, but they're investing heavily in the infrastructure to actually measure this stuff across the economy and that is a huge deal uh, it's very expensive it basically comes with no economic benefit and so when a government is willing to invest in this we, we take that seriously right so that's good we're going to move to more uh, targeted targets effectively in the short term uh, what i would call a more worrying trend um is again the ndrc and uh, broader apparatus really focusing back on short term energy security um and i should say again energy security is a top priority yeah there's nothing more pressing for any government than keeping the lights on effectively right um, the challenging piece here is that it has been the NDRC basically said in order to safeguard energy security we don't want to be beholden to too strict of energy targets right we want some of those you know five-year targets uh, meaning ending 2025 we want flexibility we don't want to have to hit a target every year just as, as long as it's hit in 2025 right but this year maybe we can be a little flexible with things the problem with that is uh I, I'm, I'm very worried of slippery slope arguments, to be clear. But we're getting close to
0: 2025 very quickly. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So w- w- <laughs> news, that one good news, one bad news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and now if we, you can go back to one point you, you highlighted earlier on, on China's dependency on coal. Could you just give us some, some background about that and what is China trying to do or not trying to do in order to phase out coal? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Power is, is by far the number one uh, source of emissions in China, which makes it the largest single source uh, of emissions in the world, given China's largest emitter in the world. What's interesting is uh, Beijing is very committed to improving the efficiency of coal, to phasing down coal. And I use that word very particularly because the NDRC and other regulators following its lead have explicitly rejected the language of phasing out coal. There is no phase out currently planned. Um, And you might say, oh, by 2060, no, there is no phase out currently planned. And that's significant. And and again, it comes back to this idea of of flexibility. Um, Beijing is, uh, uh, again, really the NDRC. I don't want to overstress the NDRC. There are other actors. But ultimately, it does come down to their their remit. uh, And they sign up on this. Basically, they want the flexibility to phase down coal as much as as, as necessary. But if they need it, they have it. They don't want to commit to, we can't use it. I think a large part of the driver is the fact that you know I don't want to put everything on this, but in 2017, 2018, people might be familiar with the coal to gas trans- um, transition effort. It was a fiasco. Um, the long and short background here is that uh, in the northeastern part of the country, which gets very cold in the winter, um, there was a lot of coal uh, coal consumption, coal burning. Sometimes not even from a power plant, just burning coal at home at times. Um, The goal was to, for local pollution and for, I mean really it's a local pollution effort at that time, to switch everyone over to gas. The problem was the infrastructure wasn't in place, the supplies were not in place, people went without power, It was a major issue, you know, people suffering with cold was not Beijing's intention, but it's what they ended up with, because of a botched implementation issue, it wasn't a policy design issue so much as an implementation issue. Um, So Beijing has been burned by this before, right? It does not want to cut off sources. It wants to keep the playbook flexible. Um, So unfortunately that mindset has, as far as we can tell, remained in most major policy documents, even if it's not as specific a policy as, you know, take Heilongjiang toward gas or something like that. It's still kind of generally pervasive. Uh, And we see that across industrial policy. We see that across uh, you know, east west, they're, they're worried about well, if we can't uh, transmit enough renewables, we still have coal, right? The obvious kind of stopgap here, I think, for energy folks is, is natural gas, right? And, and China is building natural gas up. Uh, it has some domestic supply, but more importantly, it's building up local transmission. Um, so that is a very important aspect of this, but it's simply not at a scale that it can replace coal right now. So until it has natural gas, which is not uh, variable you can have it whenever you want like data gas- like coal. generally speaking um if you can get it where you need that is a stopgap uh, to move away from coal. Beyond that, you really want to move toward renewables, but that requires more investments in uh, energy storage. Kind
0: of yeah, yeah, That is a really good transition. I just wanted to talk a bit more about renewables. Uh, as you highlighted, mm-hmm. China is also the leader in solar PV production. Could you give a highlight on the key policies that has been implemented? Uh,
1: absolutely. So as you said, you know, solar is, is a huge industry in China. Um, Right now, you know, there, there are national policies, you have the, the 14th plan uh, to reduce uh, ener- total energy consumption and ener- energy intensity. And by intensity, we mean units of energy consumed per unit of GDP output. Notice a couple things there. Now, this is emissions, right? Um, and so it, it doesn't matter if you consume solar versus coal. So the energy target is, is kind of a up Um, but the emissions and or the energy, the energy intensity has helped promote solar in particular and wind, including offshore wind recently. Um the big what's really interesting is most of what we follow from an actual implementation standpoint is at the provincial level. Uh, right? Beijing is not telling usually, there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, provinces are setting their own targets for, you know, what percent of the provincial energy mix has to come from solar, um, you know, how much output needs to come from solar, etc. So that has actually been very, it, it makes it difficult to map because it's, you know, there are a lot of provinces and they're all doing different things, um, they all have their own policies, but when you add it up, that's that's really where the drivers are coming from, is provinces doing this. Uh, and that has, has good and bad points. Um, the good points really are that there are a lot of provinces that know they can can build uh they can build a revenue stream around this right so you look at uh you look at inner mongolia for example leading coal producer it knows the writings on the wall uh for coal and so guess what it's now also a leading solar producer right and so it has an interest in being able to sell that power and so Inner mongolia the tricky thing is it doesn't consume that much power it's not an industrial powerhouse the way you know Jiangsu is or something um, but it has an interest in pushing for the build-out transmission because it wants to export its solar power, right? Um, and so you do get that local push, which is very important. The problem with it is that Inner Mongolia, for example, can only do so much to get other provinces to buy it, its power, right? And so that's where Beijing really comes in and says, "Hey, you guys have to talk to each other. You have to, to build this up." Um, and so on that note, I know this is a little broader than your question, but I think it's very important to the, the outlook for renewables, probably the most important thing we've seen, it's it's way more nitty gritty than, than most uh, news, but the most important thing to us is Beijing has explicitly called for the development of a national of a unified national power market. That sounds like, okay, cool, you know, but but one bit of background, the US does not have a unified national power market, as a bunch of the EU does not have a unified power market, right? It has a bunch of, of systems that talk to each other. Uh, EU, EU is much closer. But for China, what it really means is being able to sell power from any part of the country to any other part of the country in an economically viable way. Cut aside the jargon. What does that mean? It means renewables can be sold anywhere. Right? This is a long-term ambition. This is going to take a lot of time. It's probably a little idealistic. The reality won't be as nice. But this is a huge positive development to actually getting renewables to go anywhere else really beyond their provincial uh, source. So, so it's a little bit long winded, and a little bit aside, but as we look for where renewables are headed, it's not a technology issue. It's not a cost issue. It's a can you sell the power issue. And Beijing does have policies to terms, right? In pure economic terms, solar is is cheaper. <laughs> it's it's more viable in many ways absent in the middle of the night. Um, but you can use gas and nuclear for that. but you know, until it's fully reformed, until it's while it's still controlled, it's a it's a huge issue in, in actually moving away.
0: And the question closer to the news, everyone has been talking about the war in Ukraine and how it has changed Europe's defense policy and energy policy drastically. It's day and night. According to you, how is the event in Ukraine of shaping China's energy policy?
1: Right. Uh, first of all, just I mean, be remiss not to comment on the this tragedy, this situation. Um, for for China in particular, right now in the short term, it obviously has raised a lot of concerns about, um, about energy security, about commodity security in particular. Actually, agriculture is very affected by this as well. Um, separate topic, but I, I would be remiss not to note that. Um, on the energy side, you know, the good news for China, insofar as any silver lining to any of this is that there's, you know, China is not dependent on Russian energy in the way that the EU is, right? It likes it, it certainly uses it, but it's not dependent in the same degree, right? So it's it's not going to cause kind of the same degree of impact. So on the policy side, that means that really, you know, it doesn't need to change much in, for, for the long-term policy trajectory. Um, on the other hand, in the short term, there is absolutely a turn toward, you know, Again, that increased focus on energy security in the short term, but really it's it's actually a commodities more general uh, issue. So, for example, one of the interesting ways we've seen this manifest is um, nickel trade. I don't know if you saw there was a a massive short squeeze on nickel driven by uncertainty around. I guess Russia produces 10 or 11 percent of global nickel. That is a big blow to China's new energy vehicle industry for the batteries. Nickel is a core component of that. So. China's very interested and in, in concerned about supply chains that feed into enablers of the green transition, especially on the raw uh, minerals and, and, and that kind of commodity. Um, you know, new energy vehicles are the starting point, the first concern, but um, a number of other places or other areas are also potentially affected by these uh, global commodity market disruptions. You know, everything from solar panel productions, you know, energy storage for, for utilities. So that's really where we're seeing a lot of the impacts. So it's a little indirect, you know, but uh, yeah, so long term, I don't. It's it's hard to say right now. Obviously, everything's in flux. But at the moment, we don't see a major change in long term energy policy. We just see a very sharp ramp in short term risk aversion, basically. Um, and a long term look, more generally, you know, Beijing has for a couple of years now been very focused on, ironically, two parts. One is diversifying its uh, supply of resources, and two is decreasing foreign dependence, mm-hmm. right? So on one hand, diversifying decreases particular dependencies, but on the other, it really is trying to ramp up domestic production of key commodities that will fuel its green energy transition, especially in the vehicle mm-hmm. space. So I expect that to get ramped up a little to get to get a little more of a political boost out of the situation.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show, Corey.
1: Well, thank you very much, for the opportunity.